Good morning. Wonderful to, to be here at the Christmas season. Thank you, worship team, for bringing us to the, the foot of the throne of grace to worship our Lord. I want to read a passage of scripture before we get into the main part. the sermon it says and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified but the angel said to them do not be afraid I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, <clears throat> a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. <clears throat> A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, the Anointed One of God, the Christ, the conquering King who will rule the nations. He will rescue Israel and establish His eternal kingdom. The nations will bring gifts, just coming in, parading in to give Him, to offer them their best. All of these claims, plus more, speak of the coming Messiah. But here is what greatly confused the saints of old when they thought about the coming of the Messiah. It's in <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 52, in verses 13 through 15. That's the beginning of it. It says... My servant will act wisely. He will be raised up, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, for what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. <clears throat> now, some of those statements don't seem to fit together that well. Why does it say that this servant of God will act wisely, be raised, lifted up highly, and highly exalted? But then it goes on to say that many were appalled at him, and that he was so disfigured beyond human imagination, marred beyond human recognition, how could this one that was so wise and so exalted then be so horribly mistreated? Well, we know, as you can imagine, when they read that back then, how could you put those two together? But it is what happened to Christ, isn't it? And this prophecy was 700 years before Christ was born. 
And when Christ came, he came and spoke truth, and he honored God, and he healed people, and he taught them, and he led them to true freedom, spiritual freedom, and he gave them hope, and he taught them about the kingdom, and he healed and he did miracles, but they, they followed him even beyond that. <clears throat> and when he went into a boat and went to the other side of the lake, they ran around and were there before he got there. They would stay with him all day long. But then, of course, we know that his enemies contrived, lied, plotted, you know, planned his demise so they could stay in power. And they hung him on a cross in such pitiful humiliation for all to look him and see him as he was on the hill and to mock him and to spit on him and to... to chide him but then through their murderous evil act toward God's righteous servant his shed blood sprinkled many nations so he will sprinkle many nations kings will shut their mouths <clears throat> when the Old Testament priests would offer a sacrifice sacrifice an animal they would take the hyssop and sprinkle the blood on the people, and that would be significance that their sins had been forgiven for that time. But the blood of bulls and goats could not forgive sins forever. It was just something that kept them going. They were seeking forgiveness from God. But they were a foreshadowing of the ultimate permanent blood sacrifice for sin. The animals were a covering for sin for the time being, but the once for all blood sacrifice from God's suffering servant would take away sin forever. And that would be for all who would turn to him in faith, in repentance and faith, <clears throat> and accept his truth that he taught. And it says that when the world's rulers realized who this servant of God really was, it left them speechless. The kings will shut their mouths because of him. See, back then, they did not know, but they will. For what they were told, were not told, they will see, finally. And what they have not heard, they will finally understand. Now, this is all 700 years before Christ comes to the earth. Isaiah is prophesying about God's special servant. And the prophecies don't seem to match and mix up and work together. The Old Testament prophets had a lot to say about the Messiah, if you follow through the Old Testament. He would be a conquering military hero of sorts. He'd be a person who would free his people. Then there are all those prophecies, like we saw here, that talk about him being despised and rejected. And how could they both be true? How could a conquering hero all of a sudden be despised and rejected? And some even thought throughout the centuries that there had to be two different messiahs. One would be a suffering servant and the other a conquering hero warrior. They couldn't put it together any other way. But I want you to watch now as we continue on in chapter 53 of Isaiah and we read about the further description of this suffering servant. 
chapter 53 and verses 1 through 9. Isaiah says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. He's talking about the Messiah. And like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, here is the answer even more clearly. But you, can you imagine being a prophet in the 700s B.C. and seeing, having a message from God and giving out this message? Who knows how much Isaiah understood of it? But clearly he says he was pierced for our transgressions. How do you put that together? He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of all of us. How could this promised Messiah, King of Israel, be treated so horribly? How could you even think of that? How could that even happen if you're sitting there back as a worshiper of God and think that the Messiah is coming and he says all these things about him? How could he be so thoroughly defeated by his enemies in such an act of brutality and humiliation. And then you think of God's most special prophet, his son even. But it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him our iniquity. You see, the angel's announcement <clears throat> to the shepherds as we read at the beginning here, was completely true, wasn't it? And the prophecies of a coming king who would defeat his people's enemies was also completely true. But before he frees his people militarily and conquers all their foes, his people's sins have to be paid for because there has to be payment for sin. You know, God is so holy that he can't just let sin go by. 
He forgives sin, but there has to be a payment for it. <clears throat> he didn't just say everybody's forgiven and no payment was made. He said you're forgiven by virtue of this payment, his son. And that is why the Messiah comes twice. <clears throat> First as the suffering servant to pay for the sins of his people. Then at God's appointed time, he will come to defeat the armies of the world and save all who turn to him for forgiveness or who have already turned to him. So all of the prophecies will come true, even though back in the day you couldn't really put them together. And even though they don't come true in the way we would have probably tried to figure it out, we may call it the glorious impossible. It takes the wisdom of God to make it work and the power of God to make it work. Now let's read the last three verses of Isaiah chapter 53. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see, the Lord, the, the Messiah, will see his offspring, and that would be those who come to him and become one with him through faith. <clears throat> he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. <clears throat> Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. <clears throat> it all makes sense when we understand the full picture, doesn't it? But how could they understand that back then? <clears throat> but they had to live by faith, right? And we have to live by faith. There's stuff that we can't put together and can't understand completely. But we live by faith, and we can see from their faith and how it came true for them that it's going to come true for us also. And we know that Jesus, <clears throat> was the only one who could fulfill that role. And from a human point of view, it looked like Jesus was totally defeated. And it looked like his enemies who plotted against him and worked so hard to crucify him and mocked him and berated him as he hung in that public place of shame up on that hill where everybody could look up at him and just, you know, chide him and, and insult him. Little did they know <clears throat> that they were ignorant trinkets in the hand of an all-knowing, all-powerful Heavenly Father who was at that very moment when they were hurling, you know, insults and disrespect towards the Son of God, that he was accomplishing salvation to the faithful through the very act of evil. How could that even happen? The glorious impossible. But not only accomplishing salvation for sinners, but also eternal exaltation 
for the one who was willing to bear our sin and the sin of the world on his own shoulders, who was totally innocent and holy. All the way through, it's the glorious impossible. As human beings, we could not figure this out. We could not devise a way to take care of humanity's sin problem, deserving of eternal punishment. But God in his infinite wisdom and great love along with Christ's unbelievable, unbelievable willingness to become the sacrifice for our sins, together they did accomplish the glorious impossible. <clears throat> you know, our theme song for this Christmas season says, Here's, here's one of the verses. He was buried for our transgressions, and he bears our eternal scars. <clears throat> we know from the Gospels that Jesus, in his glorified, resurrected body, still bore the scars of those who <clears throat> pounded the nails in his hands and pierced him with the sword in his side. We know that because of the story of Thomas, right? We know that Thomas didn't believe it because he wasn't there when Jesus appeared to all the apostles. He was the only, one, only apostle missing. <clears throat> and when they told him that the Lord has risen, he said, I won't believe it until I see the, the nail prints in his hands and I put my hand inside the wound in his side. Now, Jesus ends up telling him, quit doubting and believe. But perhaps some of you, and because of that, we know that, you know, Jesus doesn't get anything wrong. So that rebuke is deserved. But <clears throat> perhaps some of you had the same thought that I have had about this Thomas incident. Thomas was the last holdout of the apostles to you know, believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He wasn't there the week before when he appeared to all the apostles. You know, there are 10 apostles excluding Thomas. And then you have others that were there. We don't know how many, but it seemed like there was a fair number of people there <clears throat> gathered and praying. And Thomas was the only one that wasn't there. And just think, as all the people keep telling Thomas that he, we saw the risen Lord, you know, however many people there were. And in spite of all that testimony and all the people that he knew and these apostles that he lived with the last three years, I won't believe it until I see it for myself. He's probably the ultimate of, I'll believe it when I see it. <clears throat> Just like the people in... Western Kansas said when, when it was supposed to rain. I'll believe it when I see it. But you know, when Jesus <clears throat> rebuked the disciples for not believing, which he did from time to time, it was always because they didn't believe the scriptures. I mean, he wanted them to believe him too, but he said, you of, of such little faith to believe the scriptures. And Jesus tells Thomas to quit doubting and believe. But I think that this incident of Thomas, his refusal to believe at first until he could see it himself, I think, I'm sure that this has played a large role 
in the centuries you know, between now and then. <clears throat> because if you have one of the 12 doubting the resurrection of Jesus, and then at the end, he ends up saying, my Lord and my God. That's a strong testimony if we talk to other people. And that's a strong testimony because the one who wouldn't be persuaded by all of his close friends who he knew weren't crazy, and yet he's the one that said, my Lord and my God. I imagine there have been people coming to know Christ just off of that story. So I think <clears throat> that Thomas is there for us for our slow belief, for us who are so hard to convince. Thomas is the one, and he's kind of like our patron saint of disbelief. And then our theme song goes on to say, he was raised for our salvation, and his righteousness is ours. <clears throat> you know, Romans 4.25 says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And that's, that's what that song means. He allowed himself to be arrested and delivered over to death. And he experienced death in order to pay the penalty for our sins. He became our substitute. And he's the only one that could have done it because he had to be human in order to be our substitute, to substitute for humanity. But he had to be God in order to be the perfect sacrifice because no human could have taken that place, just ordinary human. He was raised to life for our justification. Justification is to be pardoned for your sin and to be declared righteous. And there's no way we can be declared righteous unless God just declares it himself on us. Another extreme example of the glorious impossible. Through the death of Christ, we become declared righteous through faith. It's the only way it could happen. It had to be through faith, but it couldn't be because of our works. It couldn't be because of our goodness. It had to be through faith in his works and his goodness. Another extreme example of the glorious impossible. We sinful human beings, even born in sin, living in sin, our thoughts can be sinful, our motives sinful, our actions sinful, our attitudes and desires are oftentimes sinful. But yet, we are declared righteous. And we can claim the righteousness of God through Christ. Because he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It was all Christ. It was all his doing. Our part was to accept his unbelievable offer of salvation and justification. Bruised for our transgressions, he bears our eternal scars. He was raised for our salvation, and his righteousness is ours.
So really, in this season of the celebration of Christ's birth, there's so much more than just his birth, isn't there? I mean, his birth is, is a major part of, is a major step in that salvation experience, in that salvation plan. But everything that happened up to his birth, you know, the lineage that he would belong to, the way his birth took place, the people God picked <clears throat> to uh, be there at the time of his birth for John the Baptist, for Christ, and just all that had to be done, and then all the time that went into uh, making Jerusalem as it was when Christ was born and what he had to go through, and all the, the ruling of the Pharisees and Sadducees and those people who were going to take his life. Unbelievable. All of it had to fit together. The glorious impossible. And it led to the forgiveness of sins for all who come to him in faith. Let's pray.